You're listening to the Economics Review Podcast with your host, Adi Golcha. From Congress to Wall Street and finance to philosophy, tune into the Economics Review to hear from world-leading experts on current events and cutting-edge research. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome back to the Economics Review. Our guest today is a professor emeritus in the Department of Economics at the University of Notre Dame, where he was the director of the PhD program for over a decade. He has written hundreds of papers and books, served on 78 PhD dissertation committees, and given several thousand lectures in statistics, econometrics, mathematical economics, microeconomic theory, and research methods in psychology. Holding a PhD in economics from Michigan State University, his latest book is titled Optimal Money Flow, a new vision of how a dynamic growth economy can work for everyone. It's my pleasure to welcome to the show, Dr. Lawrence Marsh. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you. So firstly, as always, I'd like to start off by asking you to introduce yourself and tell us a bit about your background and your research. Well, um, my background is um, that uh, I started in economics profession as an econometrician. So I taught econometrics for many years. So I like to tell people that econometrics is fun with numbers within economics, which is fun with other people's money. So as long as you're having fun. <laughs> my father was a Wall Street investment banker. So I learned early on that the return to capital is much higher than the return to labor. And the whole point of your career is to make the transition from getting your money from labor to getting your money from capital. Once you're getting enough money from capital, then you can retire comfortably and confidently. So before moving on to your book, there are a few broader questions that I wanted to start off with based on your research, um, starting with the current inflationary climate. So a couple of days ago, we got the August inflation rate, which was down slightly from the past few months at 8.3%. At the same time, the Fed has been hiking interest rates steeply with consecutive 75 basis point increases, causing some economists to call for greater interest rate smoothing in the interest of avoiding a recession. So how can we stop inflation now, in your opinion, without causing a recession? Well, the basic problem is, of course, that there's too much money chasing too few goods. And so we need to increase supply and decrease demand. But there's two ways of doing that. There's the carrot and the stick. And the carrot is to is the return on savings, to increase the return on savings. And the stick is to increase the cost of borrowing. Now, a private bank has to keep the return on savings below the return they get from their loans, their, their cost of borrowing. But the Federal Reserve doesn't have to do that. The, the central banks they can offer whatever savings rate they want. And when I was a little boy, you could go to any bank in the United States, and we have over 30,000 banks, you could go to any bank and uh, cash a check or set up a savings account. And so under the, the um, Postal Savings Act of 1910, uh, people would go and set up savings accounts, and then the government controlled those the rate of return that you got on your savings. And so that made it very easy for monetary policy in the sense of, of adjusting that, raising that rate. So one of the problems when you have inflation is you've got cash sitting around and you say, oh, the, the, the prices are rising and, and this cash is not going to be worth as much in the future. So I, I better I better spend this now. And, and then, then you think, oh, wait a minute, I've got some money in savings and the interest rate on my savings is lower than the rate of inflation. I'm losing value there, too. I, I, I better spend that as well. And so it just creates this upward spiral. And, and so you, what you really want to do 
is is you want to uh, offer people a high enough rate on their savings that they don't feel you know they don't panic and feel they've got to spend all their cash and they've got to spend the savings. They can move their cash into a savings account. And so the problem now is that the Federal Reserve works through the New York financial markets and it raises the cost of borrowing. And the people that borrow money are the ones who tend on average to be less wealthy. So I, I like to tell my students the difference between the rich getting richer and the poor getting poorer is the interest rate. When the interest rate goes up, the poor say, oh, no, now I'm going to have to pay more on my debts. And the rich say, oh, great, I'll be earning more on my, my savings and my investments. So, you know, that's kind of a, a generalization. Obviously, there are times when, when wealthy people may want to make investments and uh, when investments make a, a lot of sense. Um, but generally, when you raise the cost of borrowing, the people that pay the burden the most are the, tend to be the middle class and the lower middle class people, uh, the ones with the highest marginal propensities to consume. So that's that's a problem. But another problem with raising the cost of borrowing is you're suppressing supply. There's there's a lot of suppliers uh, who, let's say you've got a, a lot of demand for your product. And you say, oh, I'd like to add another line of production. So you need to borrow the money to get that up and running. And then eventually you'll earn enough to pay back the loan and, and, and make a profit. But if they suddenly start raising the cost of borrowing, you can't afford to add that another line of production. And there's a lot of seasonal and cyclical businesses that rely on borrowing money early in the year and paying it off later in the year. So it's not unusual for a real, for a retail, uh, retail establishments to be in the red through most of the year. But as they get into the holiday season, they, they cover their expenses and make a profit. And it's that holiday season that rescues them and really, really gives them that profit. There's farmers that they have to plant the seed. They, they got to fertilize. They got to put the water. They got to do all the uh, stuff with the machinery. And then they don't get any money until the harvest time. Well, again, if they borrow money and it, all of a sudden the cost of borrowing goes up, they say, well, you know, I'm not going to plant as many fields this year. So instead of encouraging supply, Raising the cost of borrowing, the Federal Reserve raising the cost of borrowing just suppresses supply and then punishes the poorer people uh, as for inflation. When if you would go in and and set up these savings accounts and they could be done through the post office or they could be done as part of creating a, a central bank digital currency. Uh, but either way that you do it, you want to offer a high enough rate on savings so that you're doing better than the, the um, inflation rate. And actually, right now, I-bonds pay 9.62%. But the trouble with these 30-year I-bonds is you can't withdraw the money for an entire year. And if you do withdraw the money within the first five years, there's a three-month penalty. And the problem with that is that the poor people who are the highest marginal pence to consume, the ones that you're trying to get to cut back their consumption, they're the ones um, that can't afford to tie up their money that long they need that cash available. They need that savings available that they can access at any time for a medical emergency, an automobile accident. Uh, if the rent is increased, they lose their job. So they just can't afford to lock that money up. And secondly, they don't even know about these accounts. So uh, you really want to target the people with the highest marginal pence to consume, and that's the lower class and, and the middle class. Okay. And so that's I'm proposing these savings accounts with high savings rates uh, offered by the government. And, but it, they're limited to $10,000. So you don't want rich people, you know, putting pouring huge amounts of money into these accounts. These are limited in the amount of money you're allowed to, to earn interest on. So can you tell us a little bit more about the nature of these savings accounts? 
Would they be hosted through banks? And would the interest rate be the same as the federal funds rate? It could be done through banks, and that would be fine. You'd pay them a fee as an intermediary, or it could be done directly through the post office. If you're going to target the bank, the the the, the underbanked, the the unbanked and the underbanked, in other words, the the poorer people that that may not even know where the nearest bank is, then you may want to do some of this through the post office. And you already go to the post office to get a passport. You know, I mean, there's there's a lot of functions the post office offers. So offering a savings account like they used to do when I was a young boy uh, seems perfectly reasonable, although we could involve the banking and even non-bank uh, PayPal or Venmo and, you know, there's other. Uh, and once you get it up in, with a smartphone, you can use a smartphone to smartphone transfer. If somebody rakes your leaves or cuts your grass um, or shovels your snow, you can pay them smartphone to smartphone transfer through your uh, savings, but government savings account to their government savings account. Why did so the government? Yeah. Why did the government stop doing that? I mean, I, I feel like that would be quite a popular proposition. Yeah, I think it was really the banking system that saw it as saw them as competition, and so you know the whole free market philosophy of get the government out of this. You know, we don't need the government. Uh, that kind of uh, got to a point where they decided to back out of of doing this uh, these savings accounts through the post office. Okay, so the next thing I wanted to ask you about is the trade deficit. So as someone who grew up reading Adam Smith and Milton Friedman, the idea that goods should be able to move freely across borders was sort of a, a cornerstone of, of free market thought, and that restricting free trade was a lose-lose situation. However, it seems that no one on either side of the aisle in Washington today is willing to go to the same extent on free trade, often choosing to keep the punitive tariffs instead. So we heard Trump frequently refer to the trade deficit as a reason for this, claiming that, that this was a sign the U.S. was getting ripped off. Um, so I wanted to, to get your take on, on sort of these protectionist trade measures and your advice to policymakers from an economic as well as a foreign policy standpoint on this issue. Okay. Well, as you know, uh, when you go to the store to buy something, you win because you get what you want, and the business wins because they get the money. Well, trade by its very nature is a win-win situation. And when China takes its resources and its people work hard to make products for us, they send us their products. And instead of us sending products back to them, we send them pieces of paper with George Washington's picture on it. We, we send them U.S. dollars. And ordinarily, uh, what would happen is those dollars would go into the foreign exchange market and drive down the value of the U.S. dollar making our products cheaper for them to buy and their products more expensive for us to buy. But China doesn't allow that to happen. China requires that its businesses turn in their U.S. dollars for the local currency. And then China takes those U.S. dollars in its sovereign wealth fund and turns around and buys U.S. securities uh, in the New York financial markets. So it's buying U.S. treasuries. It's got over a trillion dollars of the U.S. treasuries that it's purchased through all this money that's been coming in. So if you think about it, logically, we're getting these goods from China. Instead of sending our goods back, we're keeping our goods. So they're producing goods for us, and we're producing goods for ourselves. So who's, who's losing here? Who's, who, who, who's getting ripped off? Well, it's not us. <laughs> well, it's not China either, really. What's really happening is, is we're, our companies are going to China and building factories and and putting in technology. And, and, and China is doing this because it's got these 
uh, people coming out of the rural areas. So they, China has a political problem. The people are coming out of the rural areas into the cities, and it needs to employ these people. It doesn't want a lot of unemployed people roaming around the cities. That, that would be politically unacceptable to the Chinese government. So they're employing uh, these people that come into the cities, and they're relying on us to buy their products so they can keep them employed. Now, eventually, and it's already developing, that China will develop its own middle class and be able to uh, purchase those products for themselves so they wouldn't have to rely so heavily on us. Now, the reason that we in the United States want other countries to buy our products is because we have a, a, a distorted money flow. The, the, the people, the employees in the United States, the middle class, the people on Main Street can no longer afford to buy back the value of the goods and services they're producing. So much money is going to Wall Street, and there's so little money left on Main Street that they, the people on Main Street can't buy back the value of the goods and services they're capable of producing at full employment. So that's why we have these federal deficits. That's why the Republicans have this $1.7 trillion tax cut, and the Democrats run all this stimulus and infrastructure. They, they are trying to make up that gap that the people haven't the, the hardworking people have not gotten that that money. And then we look to foreign countries to buy our stuff in order to try to avoid slipping into recession. Now, back in the 1990s, I invested in Adobe, Adobe stock. Oh, well, this looks good. I'll buy this. So I forgot that I had invested in it. I got a 7,000% return on Adobe. I thought, wow, I'd forgotten I invested this. Why are they giving me this money? I, I deserve a reasonable return on my investment. But why did the creative people in Adobe, the entrepreneurs, the hardworking employees get this money? Why did they give it to me? I, I, I'm just a deadbeat. I didn't do anything for Adobe. It didn't make any sense. So it's this maximization of shareholder value, maximizing this EO pay. And a lot of this came back, came about because of a transition from an old aristocracy before 1960, where you got to, into Princeton, Harvard, and Yale, and the other Ivy Leagues uh, by legacy because your parents had gone or your uncle or George W. Bush got into Yale because even though he had a C average because he had legacy. But after 1960, they introduced SAT scores, ACT scores, and they transitioned to a meritocracy. So we thought the meritocracy was going to make things better. In fact, it made things even worse. It got even harder to get up the, the, the ladder, of socioeconomic ladder. Uh, the, the people from the meritocracy felt that they were so entitled that they got the very best schooling for their children, pre-kindergarten schooling, and they did everything they could to help each other and establish their own, we call it a meritocracy, but it really was becoming a plutocracy. And, and so the CEOs worked together with the golf buddies and other CEOs from other companies, and each CEO says, well, look, I'll increase your compensation if you increase my compensation on my board. So you help me on my your board. And so uh, Steve Clifford wrote the book, the CEO pay machine, and Steve Clifford was on some of these boards, so he understands how all this works. Now, Germany and some other countries have figured out how to deal with this. They require employee representation on corporate boards. So I propose that 40% of the corporate board be elected by the rank and file employees of these companies. And if you want to read a great book on what happens when a company is owned by its employees, read Greg Graves' book that's just come out called Create Amazing. It's about Burns and McDonald 
this construction company here in Kansas City that started out as a small construction company, but because it was owned by its employees and its employees were rewarded for working as a team together to do the very best, they're now a worldwide construction company. They're, they've Create Amazing is a great book that explains how that all works. You, you can't just treat your employees like they were just another factor input like steel and plastic. You have to understand your employees have agency. And even at McDonald's, they can pick up trash around the parking lot. They can welcome the customers. They can keep places clean. They can be real nice to one another. They can avoid waste and save money for the company. So the agency of the employees is very important. And the problem we have in our society today is that the wealthy people, they don't know what to do with all their wealth. They, they end up putting it in the, the financial markets because they just don't know what to do. You can only wear one pair of shoes at a time. You can only drive one car at a time. You can only go out to so many fancy restaurants in a given day. You can, yeah, you could have two or three vacation homes, but do you really want four or five vacation homes? Do you want five or six cars? At some point, you just say, I don't know what to do with this money. I'm going to put it in uh, the financial markets. Now, occasionally you get someone like Steve Jobs or Elon Musk um, or, or uh, Bill Gates and others who are very creative and imaginative. But their main focus has not really been on, oh, how can I make as much money as possible? Their focus is on, how can I change the world? How can I make a, a wonderful, fantastic product? And we saw that with Apple Computer, where they hired a manager who was focused on financialization, which is cutting costs and trying to make short-term profit. And finally, Steve Jobs had to come back in and take back over because they were just getting too much into this financialization stuff, too much into short-term and not looking at a vision for the long term of the company. So Elon Musk wants to take us to Mars. I mean, these are people with great ideas. Those are the people we should be rewarding and not the people that just have so much money, they just don't know what to do with it, you know, and, and, and getting giving me a 7,000% return on my Adobe investment just doesn't make any sense. So I think I would disagree with almost all of what you said there, starting with the idea that you didn't deserve the 7,000% return that you got on Adobe because you just left it there. I would argue that the reason you deserve the return that you got is because you bore the risk. When you invest in an early stage startup, there's a very, very high chance that your investment will go bust. You could have just as easily lost all your money, and that risk is why you deserve the high reward that you got as an investor. People don't just deserve a reasonable return regardless of the risk that they take. That's absurd and contrary to every principle of finance and would destroy the economy. The second thing I would agree disagree with is that the wealthy have so much money that they just don't know what to do with it. How many houses can you have? How many cars can you have? However, the data would indicate that the majority of the wealth of the ultra-wealthy is held as equity in private businesses, meaning it's being used to create value in the form of innovation, jobs, goods, and services. All of the major American success stories, Apple, Facebook, Microsoft, they all had wealthy backers, and the ultra-wealthy are still the driving force in angel investment today. Well, I, I, my problem with that is if the money was, first of all, the money doesn't go all that much into real investments of physical and intellectual capital. I've discovered, and there's this, this very interesting uh, article in the Journal of Finance by Simta Barkai that, I see, I thought that with automation, with with the automobile companies being robotic, all these robots, that, that, okay, so not as much money was going to labor, but there must be a lot of money going to capital. And then when I read this article in, in the Journal of Finance, I 
it reported that between 1984 and 2014, uh, the share of labor dropped 11%. And that didn't surprise me. But the share of capital dropped 22%. I said, wow, where's this money going? Where's this money going? What's well, going to pure profits? And what happened? If, if you read the book uh, by Jonathan Tepper and Denise Hearn called The Myth of Capitalism, it really should have been called The Myth of Competition, that in the United States, there's been less and less competition within the United States. It's got more and more, even something like, like eyeglasses. Now, my wife and I recycle in our blue uh, recycling bin uh, lots of plastic and glass every week. And yet these eyeglasses cost, instead of just costing $40 or $50, they cost well over $100. Well, it's because there's the eyeglass business is essentially a duopoly. It's a duopoly. And when you have these duopolies and oligopolies, you get less quality goods, you get lower quality, you get higher prices, it suppresses competition. We see that because of economies of scale and networking effects, we're, is causing us to have less and less competition over time. And when Adam Smith talked about this, sure, he talked about the, f- the first invisible hand. The first invisible hand was the invisible hand of competition, where these companies compete with one another for offering better quality products at lower prices. And greed is good because people out for themselves will, will work against each other in this competition, producing better quality products at lower prices. But Adam Smith also had implicitly a second invisible hand. Adam Smith said, people of the same trade seldom meet together, even for merriment and diversion, but the conversation ends in a conspiracy against the public or in some contrivance to raise prices. And that's exactly what's happened. The the invisible hand of economic power has overpowered the invisible hand of competition within the United States. And, And all of this money is not ending up going to new investments and innovation and starting new businesses. No, what's happened is the financial markets have become separated from the real economy. So the financial economy on Wall Street, they're, they're coming up with new innovation, innovative derivatives. They're coming up with, with mortgage-backed securities. And like mortgage-backed securities, for example, the, the banks used to be very careful who they loaned their money to. But once they started securitizing the mortgages and then selling them, they, that eliminated the risk for them. So they could get these ninja loans, no income, no job, no assets, loans. And as soon as they got the loan made, they knew this guy wasn't any good, but they could pass this on to the financial markets quickly through the securitization. So the whole financial world has, has come separated from our, our true economy. And the money's not really going where it should. That's why our productivity has fallen so much in recent years that, that Robert Gordon has done a lot of work on this, showing that U.S. productivity has dropped substantially because of this financialization process. And that's the fundamental underlying problem. And, and as far as taking risks, when, when you don't have much money, yeah, you're taking a risk because the absolute, of money, absolute amount of money you have is very important. But once you get a certain level, it doesn't matter anymore because it's the relative amount of money that matters. Now you're in a competition in the relative amount of money. You want to see where you fall in the Forbes list of richest people. That's where your competition is. And if they come and tax you, but as long as they treat everybody on the same level the same, you may be mad about paying more taxes, but that doesn't take away your motivation to want to be richer than the other guy. You're still in this competition in the relative amount because the absolute amount doesn't matter anymore once you have enough money. 
you, you've got more money than you need. You don't know what to do with all the money. So you put it into the financial markets. And you say some of people like to play the game of trying uh, competing in all these nanosecond uh, uh, arbitrage stuff. And they really get into this. But it really detracts from the real economy and the people that are really doing the creative work and are doing the hard work to create the products. And we're taking away from them. And we're not, we're distracting from them. And there's not enough money left on Main Street. So we have to get into all this deficit spending, which would be unnecessary if we required that 40% of corporate boards be elected by rank and file employees in the companies, the way Germany and other countries have started to do. That makes a lot more sense so that you don't have these labor strikes. Once you have these people on the corporate boards, they can work with these CEOs from the other companies and they can come up with good plan for their company. And they can do that without having these labor disruptions, these labor strikes. And you get rid of this deficit spending. And then you don't have to depend on other countries to buy your products. You can buy your own products because now the, the people on Main Street can afford the products. So the whole system has been disrupted. We need to repair our system by fixing this thing about the corporate boards being controlled by a CEO who brings his golf buddies onto the board, who brings other CEOs so that I'll raise your compensation if you raise my compensation. So that's what's really going on. And that's what we, we have to deal with. All right. Well, those are all the questions that we have time for today. Thank you so much for joining us on the show, Dr. Marsh. Thank you, everyone, for listening to the Economics Review. And as always, we'll be back soon with the latest.